Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Today, we have a great show that I'm really excited about. And, you know, as many of you guys know, and, um, you know, I don't talk about this often, but I don't have a lot of people on the Investing for Freedom podcast that I don't have like a longstanding or at least a, a pre-existing relationship with. But this is the power of GoBundance. And I talk about this a lot. Like basically, if you're in GoBundance and then even further, if you're a friend or a business partner to a guy like Josh McAllen, I want you in my world. And I just want to emphasize that because, you know, so many times I think people don't realize the value of networks and connections. And even as much as this sounds weird, uh, credibility around that. And that's the kind of things that I love communities like GoBundance for, because when you have a guest like today, Amit Gaglani, I know that this guy is salt of the earth because he's been highly recommended. He works with a, an amazing human. And I'm just excited for not only me to get to know him better, but the audience. So Amit, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Mike. I've, I've been following you for a while as a, as a GoBundance member and somebody to try to emulate and try to learn from. So this is a is a real pleasure for me too, and to be able to share my story and and the connection of, of GoBundance and how everything kind of fits together. So I'm excited. Love it. Should be fun. So let's jump into the four questions. If you could narrow it down to one thing that has had the greatest impact on your success, what would that be? I would say probably work ethic. Um, Growing up, my father would tell us, you know, we got to mow the lawn, we got to do this and we got to do that. Nothing was just handed to you. He would have me go up on the roof and clean the gutters and literally be scaring the crap out of me. But it was just something that we were just expected to do. And it was just understood that we just have to pitch in and do things. Now, did we want to do it at that age? Absolutely not. But now you look back on it, you're like, that's what really built the current work ethic and the, and the current drive that you have. So I would say, you know, it, it probably goes all the way back to that. You know, I I've not, I haven't really spent much time thinking about this, but as you were saying that, I I remember it's actually the the very first rental that I had ever bought. So this was like probably 2005, and we had a tenant in there that uh, you know wasn't paying, got evicted, and when when I walked into this house, which been it's been a long time since um, you know I had just like a single family property, but when I walked into this house, man, there was stuff everywhere. And when I walked into the garage, this guy didn't have garbage service for like a year and a half that he lived there. And it was just piled full of like bag, oh. bags and bags of garbage. And he had spit like he was a chewer. He had oh. chew like all over our carpet walls. It was just disgusting of it. And but when you were saying that, I remember my oldest son, Dylan, who's now 22. And I mean, at that point in time, I don't even he, he was probably seven. Um, no, not even five or six. Um, he spent two days mucking that house out with me. And I was thinking about that as you said that with your dad. Um, you know, teaching work ethic, number one, but number two, I bet you if my son ever starts investing in real estate, he's probably going to get it really quickly. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to manage my own properties. I'm going to hire somebody else to manage it. So I don't know that for sure, but it just kind of, uh, I don't know, it just kind of triggered something in my mind. Yeah. It's these life lessons that we learn that later we realize what we do like to do and we don't like to do, but if you've never done it, you don't know that you don't like to do it. <laughs> well, theory wise you do, but yeah. Totally. Love it. 
What was your greatest setback and what did you learn from it? I've had many different setbacks. You know, I own my own company. I owned a physical therapy company that I, I, I grew and sold to private equity. And uh, along those trials, along those years, there's been a lot of trials and tribulations of hiring the wrong people, hiring somebody that was controlling my books that was really stealing money from me. Later that you found out there's like 50 grand, not in one chunk missing, but over a long period of time, things were just eking out. And you, you're, you're growing so fast on a hockey stick that you don't even realize these things are happening. So... And you think you have the right people on the team, but you don't. And unfortunately, people, you know, smile at you and tell you they're doing a good job. And you look at the numbers superficially, like everything looks okay. But, you know, so I, I would say that moment, um, yeah, it was horrible at the time. But, you know, later when you reflect back, it really makes you dig in more and kind of look and oversee things and really makes you realize that the, the proper hires are very important. You know, as you're saying that too, and I think about so many conversations that I have um, where people have like trauma around, yeah, I had yeah. a business once or yeah, um, you know, I saw my dad go through business and just working his butt off. We have all these reasons why we don't want to be in business. And probably the most common thing that I hear over and over and over, um, and, you know, just as a side note, we we started working on an HVAC fund in 2020, which we kind of tabled for a little bit, but we're getting ready to roll it back out. And I was speaking at an HVAC event earlier this year um, to a room of 300 HVAC owners. And the thing that you hear over and over and over is I just can't find good people. I have the wrong people, this person. How did you, I'm just really curious when some, like, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty drastic. Somebody actually stole 50. How do you recover from that? Like, how do you get past the fact that, you know, yeah, people, some people are bad, some people are good and and just keep plowing through that? Well, obviously, since it was a very long period of time that it was happening, you know, financially, I was fine. Like, obviously, uh, otherwise, I would have known right away. And that would have been a huge thing. But they were eking it out over time. So financially, I was fine. Yeah, you feel violated. And you feel like, you know, your trust was, was violated. So mentally, it was probably harder to come over. And it took some time, really, because then every time then you're hiring somebody else, you're thinking to yourself, how do I create the systems to prevent this? But at the same time, you're growing at such a fast pace. You're like, man, I can't monitor every single thing. I can't monitor every transaction. How do I do this? So it's just you you just you keep closer tabs on your finances. You do spot checks. You have your accountants and your other people spot checking things too. You know, uh, you know, my accountants even felt, you know, guilty too. They're like, oh, we didn't see this. They were all the person was altering the QuickBooks. We didn't catch this enough. So I guess the truth is, Mike, if somebody really wants you bad enough, somebody really wants something bad enough, they'll get it. And it's just hard to find, but I don't think most people are like that. So I think you have to have a little bit of trust in humanity and, and, and to just, you know, have some humbleness when it comes to realizing, yeah, you made a mistake, but this next time around, I'm not going to, I'm not going to penalize the next person for the previous person's mistakes. I'm going to give them some, some, some room to operate, but I will have some kind of oversight that's a little bit closer in that, you know, for me personally, what ended up happening is I was scaling my business at a time when I was um, looking to sell to some private equities and, and things like that. So when this person did this um, and, and, I, and I let them go, um, it actually saved me a bunch of money because now I wasn't paying a salary. So, you know, um, I, I actually jumped in and took over some of it or I outsourced some of it. And it was kind of like the timing was right for me, too. Yeah. You know, I, I love just hearing different perspectives and and you know, just kind of drawing that out, what you said was, you know, most people are genuinely good. I don't know how you said it exactly, but yeah. that's the thing that I was looking for because so many times when we're faced with a situation like that, whether it's, you know, I built out a management team and three of them left or one of them left and started their own company. I'll never forget my first business partner. 
we left a business that we were working for and we started our own business and we became their competition. And the first time that a technician did that to us, he flipped his lid a bit. Like he, he was so mad. And I was like, he said, you know, how could, how could they do this? They just, you know, we teach them and, and then they just go start their own business. And I said, like we did. <laughs> and it's like, I, I love your perspective because, you know, most people are genuinely good. And that's not even a, that example that I was giving is not even an example of good or bad. You know what I told him, I was like, it's the American dream. It's no different than what we did. So that's not even an example of good or bad. I mean, this person didn't take our customer list. They didn't steal from us. They just, right. they just went and became our competition just like we did. But so many times, you know, and I've had this happen, we hired a a big hot shot in the MHP world in 2017 or 2018. And, you know, this guy came from, I mean, he was director of operations for a top five uh, company in the country. And man, after, it took me about nine months to figure out that it was just, it was rough, man. And, and, you know, I, I think he was probably a great, uh, great at his job at one point, but there was just challenges. And, and it took me a while to figure that out, but I could have easily said, you know what, I'm never going to hire management. Right. I'm never going to, you know, keep growing. I'm going to just shrink and scale just like you could have. But what you said was most people are genuinely good. And I think that's the lesson. And I love seeing and hearing examples like that, because I think if we're in business for any length of time or ownership, management, leadership, you're going to get burned. Oh yeah. Reality, oh, yeah. Like you said, is most people are genuinely good. And, and you know, Mike, Mike, the truth is, I didn't just come to that like day one. I went through like I was angry. <laughs> I, was, I was pissed. And it took me time to get to where I like mentally said, OK, well, now I got to move on. I can't stay in anger all the time. Like I need to move on and I need to get over it. And I need to reflect on what was right, what was wrong and where am I at? Like, you know, do I still believe in humans in, in general? Am I going to try to control everything? No, you can't. And you can't scale a company by yourself. You can't get to where you really, really want to get to. If you try to take control of everything. So some things you do have to give a little bit of things, but that wasn't the initial reaction. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard too, you know, cause we spend so much time, like, you know, I was on a champions call yesterday and we're talking about EOS and right people, right seats and values. And man, it, the more and more and more of that work you do, I, I do believe that we get closer and closer and closer to values matches. But just like the case that I was saying, man, it really took about nine months to figure out that this yeah. guy is just toxic. And, and I didn't see it for a while. And the fact that he was so close to the people and I wasn't um, just created some problems. And I, I, I own that, but it, it feels like it's never going to end. And I just remember as we're talking through this, the very first consultant that I hired, so this was 2004, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, because we were like working on budgets and I was a plumber in the field. I didn't know anything about accounting or any of that, but he made a comment. He said, no matter what, we always need to budget two to 5% for the drunken Irishman. And then he brought it over and he said, you know, it's kind of the same ratio when it comes to people. And he said the same thing that you said, most people are genuinely good. Um, so, you know, we hire for skill set and resume and experience, but then once we get past all of that, there's a percentage of people and we need to be aware of that, that are just not good humans. And sometimes it's hard to figure that out. Yeah, that's true. I started hiring for more personality than I did for the skill set. I, I thought I can, I was actually good at teaching that skill set because, you know, uh, most of my, most, most of my employees are, they're clinicians, right? So they come out with a certain skill set, but then you just want to refine that skill set. But I figure, you know what? They all have a similar skill set coming out, but I need to hire based on personality because no patient wants to come back for just skill set. They, they usually come back for personality. And then if you have the skill set on top of that, then it's a pause. 
You know, that's so good. And I don't know about you, but I was just having this conversation with Matt King, um, our new CEO at GoBundance. Um, he, you know, he was talking the other day and I've always thought this too, like when I'm in a coffee shop or I'm at a restaurant or I'm at anywhere, I have an office down at Industrious in downtown Austin. And there's a girl that works there that I'm just like, man, I want to steal this person, right? Because yeah. of what you're saying, just, you know, you look at that personality and, and the way that they treat customers and the presence that they bring, like, I'm always looking for that. So there was a, a and, and part of the, the mindset shift happened to me, oh, I don't know how many years ago now, there was a movie that came out that I, is one of my favorite movies to this day. And, and for your, your listeners, they don't know that the field that I was in. So I was in physical therapy. I owned a physical therapy company. I'm, I was, I'm a board certified orthopedic specialist in clinical physical therapy. And, and I had um, several offices. And um, the movie that I saw called Patch Adams, have you ever seen that movie? with um, Robin Williams. Mm -hmm. And there was a line in that movie that really touched me and it really got me and it basically carries me forward even with what I do now, uh, which is not physical therapy at all. Uh, he says that if you treat a, a person, sorry, if you treat a disease, you, you can win or you lose, but if you treat a person, you always win. Mm. So really at the end of the day, don't treat the problem, You know, treat the human being that's in front of you. That's what I would try to teach my employees. Like, you know, you got to be personable. You got to connect with the person. If you don't connect with the person, they're never going to come back. I don't care how skilled you are. Mm -hmm. If they don't like you, they're not going to come back. But if they like you, they're going to give you a shot and you have an opportunity to get them better. And that's when the skill sets come in. But initially, you got to have, they, they got to want to be with you. You know, if, if you have that, then you're always going to, you're always going to win. It's so good, man. There, I'm just thinking about, this is not at all where I thought this was going to go today, but um, we'll, we'll get back to it. Um, sure, sure, sure. There's a dentist, there's a dentist here in Austin that, uh, it, you know, when we moved here trying to find a new dentist and, and we found one and my, my two kids, my oldest son, and then my youngest daughter, um, they went to the dentist first and both of them came back telling my wife and I like, this is the best dentist we've ever been to. Like, that was so awesome. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Who says that about a dentist? I know. <laughs> And and I started asking them, I'm like, what what are you talking about? And and they're like, well, I'm like, was it like the way they cleaned your teeth or what? And they're like, well, we didn't even get our teeth cleaned today. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? So they went to a one, two hour, a two hour appointment and it was all consultation. She was teaching them about gum health and longevity. And, and she like took pictures of each tooth and talked to, and I'm just like, first off, I'm like, okay, this sounds like a sales pitch to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm like skeptical. And my kids are like on fire. But I, so I went and I actually really, I saw what they were. She took the time to explain like, you know, it wasn't just like this, this tooth mill. And so there's still a part of me that's like, I still haven't got my teeth cleaned. It's going to happen next week. But there's a part of me that's like a little skeptical around it. But to your point, she takes the time with each individual client and really teaches them about gum health. And so I loved what you said about Patch Adams because that was just a personal experience in my life. But again, I was really skeptical because I'm like, you know, I just want, when it comes to my teeth, like I kind of just think in my mind that I just want the problem treated. Sure. But she's treating me as a whole human, which was kind of cool. That's Is that awesome. how you ran your, your practice? I, that's how I started it. Yeah, that's how I started it. But as you add on more and more and more clinicians, and we were up to 12, it starts to get harder and harder to scale that way and to teach everybody and, you know, what you've actually, the things that the surgeons and the doctors have gotten to know you and how you kind of treat and how you, you've been, you know, you're trying to get them to emulate because look, that was your success factor. That's what 
I did to make myself successful and to gain the trust of the community as well as the physician community, that's why they would send patients to me. So if I couldn't get my employees to do the same exact thing, and they came in thinking they want to do their own thing, well, that's not really going to work, you know, in my company, because this is how I built it. So, you know, it gets harder and harder to keep that up. But yeah, I, I would, I would, I would discuss that all the time, like, treat the person, not not the problem. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And, and we'll dive into this here in a few minutes. But uh, Josh, who you work with, or partner, yeah. whatever at Accountable Equity, I mean, I've learned so much about that from him, too. Because I mean, that guy just loves his yeah. employees. He loves the systems. He loves the, the, he loves the investor community. Yeah, he's definitely all about giving back. And yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's why working with him is like, so so great, which we'll get into. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. What is the piece of advice that you find yourself sharing the most? Well, other than one that, that I just gave to treat the human and not the, well, the funny thing is that, that I share probably most often because, you know, with the finance stuff that I'm doing right now, I'm still just looking out for the individual investor and not about their dollars not like, oh, give me your money. It's more or less, does this suit you? Is this going to be something that's going to be great for you? Are you going to be at the shouting from the rooftops how well you were treated and you want others to do the same thing? Like, we don't want your money if this is not going to make you happy. We don't want a bad customer. So honestly, I, I would say that, you know, just treat every person for, you know, who they are and not from what you may want from them. Because if it doesn't suit them, then, you know, you don't want bad karma. I love it. Last question. Who has had the greatest impact on your life? I'd probably still say my father. Yeah just because of that work ethic and those early things that I really, you know, you look back and you didn't appreciate at the time, you know, and my father had passed a couple of years ago. And now you kind of reflect back on all these things. and like, yeah, hey, why am I doing this? What, what, what makes me do that? And it's because, you know, that's the way he kind of pushed certain things. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool, man. All right. So let's, I, so the first question that I have is we kind of like, I said last question, but it was the last of the four questions. Okay. As we kind of dive into what you're doing today, I'm just really curious about the journey from physician, which I'm guessing also investor, to accountable equity and what you're doing today. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So um, I started a physical therapy company 20 something, 23 years ago, right? And I was in it. I had a small room by myself and I built it up, built it up to four different offices and winning different accolades along the way. And then realizing that, you know, I keep putting money out of my pocket and only just to shell out money to try to get it back and then put money out of my pocket again to grow the business and add other offices. And I said, how do I 10X this? So then, you know, I was looking for opportunities to 10 exit. And I love the idea of real estate, but I didn't want to be getting phone calls to fix this or fix that. And I learned about syndications. And I thought there's an opportunity to, to kind of, you know, back the right horse, and then, you know, um, be able to earn passive income. So I really went full throttle doing it. You know, I started putting into different real estate ventures and things like that. Well, my friends who are physicians and surgeons started noticing what I was doing and asked if you know, they can jump in before I knew it, I was aggregating I think I had 67 plus uh, accredited investors that were kind of following some of the stuff that I was doing, not all at one time, but, you know, together. So then I would start negotiating with certain syndicators and say, well, I have $2 million, you know, what, you know, what, what can you do for us? So I would negotiate better preps, better terms, better waterfall positions. And I've just gotten used to kind of doing that. And I started liking that type of stuff. So here I am owning my physical therapy company, doing this on the side, loving doing both of these things. And then I said, you know, um, I want to be able to, you know, 10x my company. And I started looking at opportunities. At the same time in the healthcare market, things were changing. There was, 
healthcare organizations that were kind of gobbling up practices and gobbling up things. And it's just getting harder. And I felt the squeeze. And I said, you know, let me see how I can, you know, kind of reverse this. So um, different people were looking at to purchase me. I went down the route of um, talking to certain private equity companies that were really hot the trot for what we were doing. And I got into a good opportunity where I could still be a big fish in a small pond as opposed to joining a large company, which would have made me the opposite, you know. Um, so this company got started and then we grew it for a couple of years um, and we kept growing it. We went to about 100 offices across the country from East Coast to West Coast. Then a larger private equity claim, company came, got attracted and said, we want to buy the whole thing. So they bought me right out. And there I was. No more job. <laughs> so I got my wishes and I got my dreams. But the funny thing is, when you get when you get what you want, you're like, now what? Now what do I do? I woke up every day with a passion of trying to build a company. And then when that's done, you're like, that's great. After two weeks, you feel like, okay, now I feel a little empty. Mm -hmm. I got what I wanted, but now what do I do? What's my passion? I got to figure out a new passion. That's when Josh McAllen, who already knew me because I was investing and I was bringing investors to him constantly, you know, not only money, but to his learning grow events and things like that, approached me and said, look, Ahmed, you obviously know us. You obviously like us because you keep bringing more and more investors to us. Um, and you understand how to scale a company and how to, you know, exit. And you also invest in a lot of different things. You know, uh, do you want to join the leadership team? And I said, I don't know what I want to do yet. I got to figure it out. I got to figure it out. And then I finally figured out, like, you know, I really liked doing what I was doing in, in the investing front. I, I'm very interested. And he said, OK, let, let's go. And he actually gave me a, an incredible opportunity. He says, I want you to create your own fund. And here I am like, wow, you want me to create my own fund? He's like, yeah create your own fund. And I want you to, you know, put in exactly what you would like as an investor, and let's reverse engineer it. Wow. So I was like, that's great. I can put in exactly as what I would like as an investor into this fund and what I would like. And he says, yeah, and we'll reverse engineer it. So we came up with something, it was called the collateralized debt fund. And I know, you know, debt fund. So yeah, that, that was that was really exciting. I don't, I don't know if I'm uh, going way ahead here. I'm not even giving no. you a chance. to. No, no, so, I, I I'm I, I'm one that will, if I really feel like I need to, I'll, I'll jump in. But I think that's one of the beauties of, you know, when you're on a roll like that, the only thought that I had, and I'm going to yeah. throw it back to you. Go for it. I just love the abundant mindset that came out in that conversation between you and Josh. Because, and this has been kind of a theme for a long time in my life, but I've been hearing it more and more and more lately. And when I see guys like you, and when I see like guys like Josh that are doing big things, it's because we set aside the scarcity mindset and Josh came to you and said, I want you to build your own. Like, I freaking love that. That is awesome. Yeah. Like, think about that. Think about the amount of trust and th think about it. It's just, it's just crazy to think like, you know, who am I? And he's coming to me and says, look, I mean, you invest in, you know, uh, uh, self storage, you invest in ATMs, you invest in natural gas, you invest in oil, you invest in you know, multifamily, you invest in all these different things, you see a lot of different deals, you know, what excites you as an investor, if you put something together that you would like to see in an investment that would attract other people, once you kind of figure that out, let's reverse engineer it to figure out how we can do it here. So we can best serve our investor community. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. There's somebody who really cares about the investor community and giving back to them so they can, you know, benefit too. So we put something together that I think is like phenomenal and how it benefits both the properties and the in individual investors. So I was really, really excited about it. That's really cool. Um, and I want to get into that here. I want to really hear what sure. you put together. But before we do that, um, 
I want to make sure that I hit on this because when I sold my business in 2014, I've often said it was the best and worst day of my life. And I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. 110%. Yeah. I kind of want to unpack that just from your perspective because yeah. um, I think this is really important because number one, I think there's this day out in the future, whether it's quitting my job, whether it's you know becoming an accredited investor, whether it's selling my business, whatever it is for the listeners, there's this day out there that we spend a lot of time envisioning and thinking about. And, and you said a couple of things and I just wanna make sure that we don't wax over it again from my experience and yours. Um, I know it to be true. There's that day and when you finally, I forget exactly how you said it, but when you finally got whatever it is that you were looking for, you realize that, you know, that's not it. And so yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to just kind of unpack what that next version of that journey looked like. Cause you went from selling to Josh, which is awesome, but there's that middle ground there that I yeah. think is really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is when you're going through this, nobody feels bad for you. Nobody feels bad that you had a, a pretty decent exit and now you don't know what to do with your time and you can do whatever you want. Like nobody feels bad. There's no violins playing. But in your mind, you're like, listen, I wasn't built this way to sit around. Mm -hmm. You know, you built your you built yourself to a certain level that you're just go, go, go with a mission and a passion. You wake up with a passion because that's what you want to do. And that's what drives you. When that passion is taken away, not taken away, but you basically got what you've been trying to do. You're like, now what? You have these visions like, okay, I'm going to golf and I'm going to do this and I'm going to find these other things to do. You're like, Okay, well, I already did that, like in the first couple hours of my day. Now, what do I do? So really, I had to sit down and literally put pen to paper and figure out what am I good at? What do I like to do? What do I not like to do? What am I passionate about? What would I continue to be passionate about? That's going to drive me. Otherwise, having a an aimless life is not a good existence. I don't care how many zeros you have in the bank account. But if you have no passion and nothing drives you, at the end of the day, it's not even worth it, you know? So... I had to sit there and figure that out. And what I wrote down, it kind of lined up with what Josh was talking to me about. That's why I kind of felt like, okay, this is something that I would love to be able to do. I can get up in the morning and be passionate about that. Um, the other day, so sorry, I'm just taking some notes because this is really good. The other day, we we had um, a speaker come into our couples mastermind. Uh, we just had an event at our house and he was talking about an Esther Perel quote that said, the average person will marry uh, three people three people in their lives. The question is, is it going to be the same person or three different people? And, okay. and that kind of stuck with me. But as you're talking about this, setting, setting the marriage conversation aside, just that quote, I've thought about this for a long time because I think most people will go through, uh, you know, five, six, seven different career versions or passion versions of themselves as well. And the real question is, is it going to be you and that same version your entire life? And as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm like, I'm getting so inspired, number one, but it's really causing me to think more about the retirement equation because, you know, we, we talk about this a lot and that's why you're over in the investor quadrant and moved from yeah. you know, bringing it back to simplicity, employee, self-employed, big business investor. You went through all of those, by the way, which is really cool. Um, but when we start thinking about that and we're thinking about this conversation, when people look forward to that day when they're 60 or 70 or 80 years old and they can't wait to retire, number one, they're going to get there and they're going to have that same experience that you and I had, fortunately, earlier 
in our lives because I think every time we have a further awakening. But the reason for that too, I think, is if that's what people are looking forward to is that day when they're 70 and they're going to retire, it's because they you were talking about how passionate you, you woke up every day just like, you know, passionate and doing the thing that you loved. And what I realized as I was listening to you is that so many people don't wake up that way every day. And then therefore, all they're looking forward to is that 60 or 70 year old age yep. when they can retire. And I feel fortunate, number one, that, you know, I found that and, and that you found that. But there's such a lesson in there, too, because even when you exited, you have to reinvent yourself. So back to the Esther Perel quote, I was just thinking about it and taking notes because and what that means from a marriage perspective too. And, and it hit me between the eyes because my wife and I are coming out of a, you know, a 20 year season where we raised kids and moving on to the next season. And, and I'm feeling this new revived sense of like reinventing us and being able to grind. Cause I didn't want to grind, man. I wanted to be present for my kids, but, but that's that second version, that second marriage for her and I, but as a professional or as an investor or as a business owner, I think we need to kind of understand that concept and realize that we're going to reinvent ourselves. We're going to be different versions of ourselves and be prepared for that. Absolutely. So the idea of retirement is, is a farce, I believe. And, and, and that's exactly why, because the idea of let's wait till a time when I don't have anything to do. And that's, I'm looking forward to doing nothing. That sounds great for two weeks, but generally you need to have something that kind of motivates you and drives you. So the idea of you know, decreasing your hours, working to a different pace, you know, you know, taking more time off, that is awesome. You know, that's great, you know, at a certain age. But the time to the, the thing to not look forward to is a time when there's nothing to do. Because I think that's when humans as humans, we waste away. Yeah, so literally, our bodies, our minds, everything just starts to deteriorate because there's nothing that drives you then. You're not striving for anything. You're not every day is the same. Like there's nothing to push you. You know, it's your your phrase of treat the human and not the problem. It relies. It it kind of relates to this too. Like, yep, going through that season. I, that that's one of those things that I'm going to remember forever, man. I'm I'm being serious. Like, treat the human, not the problem. It's so good. And when we're in that season, we really have to give ourselves some grace and come back to that with ourselves too. Treating the human and not the problem. Like, what do I do next? And what am I? And what's my value? It's like really treating us. I had a mentor one time that said we grow weary in the waiting season and that has stuck with me. And so I'm curious, and maybe after you answer this, we'll get over to the, the debt fund, but I'm curious because when I sold my business, I grew weary in the waiting season and I got involved yeah. in a couple of things that I probably should have never been involved in. I bought a small business back that I had sold years ago. Actually, I took it back because they were, they were having some troubles. And anyway, got distracted because I wasn't waiting. So what did the waiting season look like for you and how, like, how long was it? What did you go through? What did you experience? I know you said you put pen to paper, but dissect that for me. Yeah. So everybody told me, don't rush into anything. Don't rush into anything. So, I, you know, as much as I wanted to after those two, three weeks of, you know, kind of bored after, you know, getting bored, I said, okay, let me just figure out what I'm going to do. Let me take it easy. I have other businesses and things like that, that I can, I can monitor. I just, um, I really just, like I said, I, would get up in the morning, I would have a routine, I would work out, I would sit there with a journal, I would try to, to journal, I would try to meditate, just try to figure out like, what do I want to do? What, what does that next phase look like for me? It took me a while. And I would, like I said, I would write things down, I would try to figure out like, in what way do I want to push? Do I want to keep pushing? And I said, yeah, I'm kind of built the way to keep pushing. And I think that's from that early mindset where my dad was like, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this. And he was a guy who constantly was on the go, never would stop. 
mm-hmm. you know? So it was kind of just innate that you want to do something. You can't just sit there and do nothing. So my waiting season was more or less me just trying to be an introvert and trying to figure out like what drives me, what do I like to do? What am I passionate about? You know? And I thought it was okay. Let me be with the kids more. But then obviously I was annoying the crap out of them. They're like, dad, get out of our face. (laughs) So, so I was like, okay, well maybe I'm a little bit too much in their face. Let me, I need to back off and figure out like what I, what I really want to do. It's not all about being in my kid's face all the time. So uh, I really just took some time to figure out like what, drove me and like, you know, got into my own head and see, you know, what am I interested in? So it took me a couple months. uh, And I purposely took a couple months to do that. Yeah. And you said Josh approached you and you declined at first, what was kind of the switch? So he he was raising funds for another equity fund, and I was bringing tons and tons of investors. At the time, you know, I already knew that my exit was going to be coming because I had a, um, I think it was a six, six month period of time where I knew that the company was sold. And now I, part of my work agreement was for another six months. So actually, to be honest with you, my whole mental thought process probably took about eight, nine months, uh, eight months, maybe or so to figure out like what I want to do, because I knew I was exiting. Um, so yeah, Josh approached me because he saw that I was keeps bringing in funds. And he's and he noticed that and he also knew that I was going to be exiting my company. So when he first approached me, maybe it was in April, May, I had said no, I kept having conversations with him. I probably said yes, by July, uh, mid to end of July, I think that's when I kind of finally said, Okay, let, let's do this. Wow. And I'm so I'm curious, and, and this will lead us into, you know, what it what is it? Um, he said, build the fund that you would the way you would want to see it as an investor. Tell me about that process and what did you guys ultimately end up crafting? So me owning my own physical therapy company at the time, and I had uh, marketing people and I used to take surveys all the time. I said, well, you know, you have to take a survey. You have to kind of find out what does other investors want? I know what I want. So I put pen to paper and wrote it down. But then I said, what do other investors want? So I started asking around, what are they looking for? Turns out it was the same exact thing that I was looking for. They want monthly distributions. They want to be in something stable that's not based on a pro forma model that they, you know, that they're not hoping it will turn out great, that they already kind of have an idea that this is what it's going to be. They wanted to have a high pref and they wanted to have cash flow. Um, and they wanted that kind of security and they wanted some flexibility. They didn't want to be locked in. So we were able to figure that out in a debt fund model uh, to help out our properties as well as help out our investors. So, you know, if, if you will, I'll, I'll kind of go into a little bit more detail on how we, how we did it. So the CDF is the collateralized debt fund. And what, we're, what we've done is put together a product to offset some of our hard money lending that we have in our resorts. So we have very large operating resorts. And the reason that we have hard money lending on these resorts is when we're buying them, we're buying these resorts out of bankruptcy or buying them for significantly discounted prices because either they've been sitting around and not performing, and then we come in and we revitalize them, we redevelop them. But when you do that, the banks will only give you a certain amount of lending, right? Because they base it on what was the pro forma before or what was going on before. Well, if you're pulling out of bankruptcy, there was no really historical. So they're not going to give you 100% financing on it or give you a significant amount of financing on it. So they bring some money to the table. We raise some money and then we get money from hard money lenders. And hard money lenders are, are, are costing you anywhere between 12 to 14% with, you know, with points and everything like that. So we created a fund, the collateralized debt fund, and we pay our investors 6 to 10%. All right. We take that money and we offset the hard money lending. 
So we'll move certain amounts of money into tranches, okay? So let's say we raise $500,000. We'll take $500,000 and pay back the hard money lender, you know, because our terms allow us to do that. So now we have we have uh, a debt instrument that now the debt belongs to, the, the creditors are now the uh, CDF investors, and they're going to earn 6 to 10%, which they're happy with because they're getting 6 to 10%. They're getting it on a monthly basis, and it's cheaper debt for us on the property. Mm. So now the property debt isn't, we're not paying 12 to 14%, we're paying 6 to 10%. And the beauty is we feel great about it because now we're not paying some hard money lender that doesn't care about us. We're paying our own investor group. These are some of the same investors that are invested on that same property as LPs. So they're helping their own investments and they're higher on a waterfall because now we're on the creditor level, not on the LP level. So not to go deep in the weeds, but the, the point is it brings it full circle for our investor community. They get the benefit twice. Yeah. And we feel good about it because now we're we're putting money into our investors' hands instead of somebody else's hands. So I'm I love it, by the way. And and we'll we'll get to you know how people can reach out and find it. But I'm sure. curious, I'm curious again back to the journey. Um, what have you learned going from you know doctor investor side to being the fund manager, if you will? Um, honestly, just doing deals over all these years, over 10 plus years, I just looked at deal structures, you know, because the first time I did it, I just didn't understand. I'm like, what do you mean you're going to pay me this much? How, how are you use, utilizing my money? And then I realized, oh, you're using my money to be able to put the down payment on the property. And it just started connecting dots. And I, I can't tell you the number of podcasts I would listen to. And I just write feverishly because I didn't understand the terms that they were talking about. I'm just looking it up on Google, looking up all these terms. You do it enough, Mike, and you start to be the people that you start to be the person that people come to to ask the questions. Mm -hmm. And that took years for me to do, but I was passionate about it. I would literally be running on the treadmill, listening to podcasts and writing, pausing it and then like trying to run, write it down because I was like, I don't know this term. I got to go look up this term. I got to go look up this term. So it took a while, but it was just something that I, once again, I was super passionate about and I loved it. Yeah. What's your favorite part about being on this side of the equation? Um, so I love treating patients, so don't get me wrong, but you, you were bound to a schedule when you're treating patients. You knew that your patient starts at this time and you had to finish at that time. So your captive audience is like at that time. With what I'm doing, it's, I, it, there's no schedule per se. So I can work at a different pace. I can do things at this time. I can go, you know, take my kids to school if I need to or bring them home or do something like that, which you couldn't do if you're in patient treatment all the time. Yeah. So I like the flexibility. I do like numbers. I like looking at terms. I like looking at waterfalls. I like understanding structures and I like explaining it to people. So, yeah. You had made a comment that during that season, uh, you be, you forced yourself to become an introvert. Yeah. To look inside myself to figure out like, what am I about? Like what really drives me? Yeah. I woke up in the morning and I was passionate about it. Well, why was I passionate about it? Like, what is the things that really drive me? Is it just about making money? Is it about like creating something? And that's what it was. It really came down to A, I'm creating something and B, I'm helping somebody. I'm helping people. It goes back to the movie thing, that same quote. And that's why I was saying to you, I still use that now. Mm -hmm. When I'm talking to an individual, I'm trying to look out for them as an individual. It's not about the investment per se. I'm like, is this going to satisfy your need? Because if it's not going to satisfy your need, then we don't want to do it. I don't want to put you in anything that's not, not going to satisfy what you need. Man, that's good. I love it. So I'm just thinking about knowing Josh McCallan and Accountable Equity and the whole group. 
Um, you guys do a lot of investor events and and really yeah. in, in investor facing things. Um, so are you do you are you naturally like an extrovert or or do you love that part of it? So I love. It's very different. It's it's funny. You mentioned these things about seasons, right? Initially, like going through college and stuff, I hated public speaking. Mm. Now I love to get up there and start talking to people. I love going on these things. When we have our learning grow events, you know, I'm I'm part of the people who give the speeches and things like that. So yes, I enjoy it. I like connecting with people. I like going on podcasts like this. I like talking to people. But that's when I'm on, right? But then there's a point where I'm off too. And I feel like I have that balance. Like you can't always be on. I think I feel like that's just a tremendous energy suck. I think you need to settle down and, and be a little bit introverted at certain times. So it's it's like a switch. You could turn it on when you need to. Yeah. You know, you you bring something up that just has me thinking too. There's so many people that think that, you know, they don't like people, they wouldn't want to speak, they, you know, they they don't want to talk, et cetera. But I see people go through a transition, as you said, you went from college to when you're on fire about whatever it is that you get to speak about or share, or you're, you know, really literally being able to treat the human and not the problem, which again is so impactful. Um, I kind of feel like just for the audience, just an observation that I have, maybe that's some of it, you know, maybe it's not so much that we don't, you know, want to speak or share our truth or start a podcast or get on social media. I was just talking to one of my clients yesterday and he loves Twitter he hates Instagram. So I do some one-on-one coaching and this guy wants to build his brand and he wants to build his network. And, and he's telling me, you know, I love Twitter. I hate Instagram. I'm like, well, why do you love Twitter? And he's like, well, I just feel like I can go in there and, and, and make text. And as we really started diving through it, I'm like, we, we talked about the same thing. It's really, he doesn't fully have his message dialed in yet. And I'm like, honestly, people that are comfortable on Instagram, they're sharing their life. They're sharing things that they're passionate about on Twitter. You know, you just want to share some text and I get that, but you kind of, you kind of solidified something for me. I, as I've gotten more and more confident about what my gift is to the world, I've become more and more extrovert and want to be with people around that. Yeah. And the more you know your stuff, the more comfortable you feel about talking about it. So it just goes back to in the college days, you're just learning so much. You don't you haven't grasped that whole thing yet. Right. You don't know what you're even talking about. So to go up and talk about something you don't even know, you don't feel that comfortable. Now, I feel like because of all those years of me trying to stop on the treadmill and write things down and understand it, I feel like my I've wrapped my brain around it. and I feel like I can, you know, give back. So good. Well, I want to turn it over to you. Any last words of advice? How do we find uh, the Collateralized Debt Fund? How do we find Amit? Uh, give it to yeah, us. Yeah, sure. Well, anybody interested in this should definitely go to the company website, which is uh, www.accountableequity.com. And then if you want to reach out to me, it's A Gaglani, so G A G L A N I at accountableequity.com. I'm sure you can have my information in the show notes. So that way they can they can follow up with me and ask any questions and just connect with me. Ask questions, please ask questions. Let's see if something's right for you or you just want to learn a little bit more. You know, I went through this whole process and this journey and let me help somebody else. I love it. Um, I feel like maybe a, maybe two more minutes with everything that's going on today. Give us some last bit of wisdom on what you guys are thinking about doing. I mean, even just the fact that the word collateralized is in the debt fund is is pretty important nowadays. So what what do yeah, you Yeah, from so from a company perspective, we see what's happening obviously out there, all the talk about the recession. We know something is going to be coming in. So we're kind of moving more into cash positions. Uh we want to make sure that we have enough cash on hand because what we actually see is huge buying opportunities. Mm-hmm. 
you know, we have a huge funnel with deals coming in all the time and we're looking at deals. We just think that we can get better deals coming up. So if we have, we're, we put ourselves in a cash position, we're going to have tremendous buying opportunities that we can go after. And we want our investor community to, to benefit from that. So part of the collateralized debt fund, you know, is going to help us do that because we're going to have more cash on hand to be able to offset some of the hard money lending, but we can also use it in times of quick acquisitions that we need to be able to close on. Cash is king at the end of the day, right? So if you can close quick without having to worry about institutional debt and things like that, without having to fill out thousands of applications, you're able to close quick. You can actually negotiate some pretty great terms and get some things moving going. So that's our position right now. We see things that are going to be good opportunities because we have stuff on the table right now. We're just kind of holding on certain things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we feel good about that. I like it. And it's it's kind of interesting. I was having this conversation yesterday when interest rates get to seven, eight, nine, ten percent, it makes those, you know, the the investor returns um it just makes it really interesting. So I mean from being able to put the investor in the place that you guys have versus, you know, taking on that that debt that's really expensive right now. So yeah. And 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 people often ask, well, there's gonna come a time where you know, you're paying, let's say, six to ten percent. That's going to be more expensive than institutional debt. And they're right; it will. We won't use it for that purpose then. But we, in in the large resorts that we have, we can use money at, for so many things to increase operations. Mm-hmm. Problems that we have right now is we don't have enough hotel space because we're booked for the next two years. Mm-hmm. So we're giving away that. We would build our own like more rooms and things like that. So there's things that we can add in that are going to be beneficial for the properties. Uh, with that cash. And it would be like a a bridge loan for us to be able to tap into. We call it be the bank because it allows us to be the bank and our investors to be the bank. I love it, man. So one more time, the email address, if they want to reach out to you. A Gaglani. So it's A-G-A-G-L-A-N-I at accountableequity.com. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate the entire story, man. I look forward to getting to know you better. Um, Look look forward to it. It's going to be awesome. Awesome, Mike. It was great. Thank you, sir. If you've found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.